0: Tonight we're on the ninth parami, metta, and we'll be on it for a month. In fact, if these, uh, if, if there is a parami that stands out for you, that resonates with you deeply, and we happen to be moving on uh, in an untimely manner in terms of your own sense of having really delved into that particular issue, I would stay with the parami you're on. You may want to come and listen to the other talks or something, but then I would just do a search on the Internet for other talks around that particular resonance, and I would just keep moving with that one until it feels in some way finished for you. Because uh, I can't uh, take the pulse of each one of us here, unfortunately, to find out uh, how many of us need to stay a week longer on this one or move on. But you know, and it's real important for you to... Uh, uh, because sometimes if there's a a sense that there's more for you to learn, and of course on all of these subjects there is an infinite depth of understanding that can come out of them, but if you really feel like there's something rich and valuable in staying with one or another, then that's your heart speaking, and you just need to listen to that, and move into it and with it, until it feels uh, somewhat um, stabilized, And then, uh, very nicely, walking into the next. So uh, this week we're on the ninth, harmony, metta, metta, loving kindness. Love is the nature of life, and kindness is what love does when it is engaged. An engaged love, engaged activity is kindness. You know, I was thinking as we were sitting, we're really welcoming. Uh, within that quietude, uh, just in our willingness to be quiet together and our willingness uh, just to be quiet with ourselves, not to um, compound our story, not to exaggerate or react, but just to sit with ourselves is, is a statement of love. It's a statement of, of collected energy that's no longer moving and reaction to something, but has gathered itself together to just uh, hold itself uh, in that moment for those moments of meditation without any pressure or without any need to change, without any sense of condemnation for what's going on in the mind, not looking at ourselves in any kind of righteous or moralistic way, but simply releasing the need for that sort of tension and uh, stress and just allowing ourselves to participate in quietude is an act of love itself. And the process, the adventure of meditation, takes us from uh, a very embedded uh, and inscribed way of looking at the mind where we believe each and every thought that is being thought and each reaction is being so... Uh, is implicating ourselves to such an extent. And each emotion being so personally represented, which is the way we start the meditation. And as the meditation extends itself over time, we begin to extract energetically from the forms that meditation used to be so meaningful, used to be so personal. And the, the as the energy gets extracted from it, and how does that energy get extracted? It gets extracted through our willingness just to hold it, to look at it, to be aware of it, to, to see what it is, rather than what we have known it to be, rather than what we believe it to be, rather than what we fear it is. We simply uh, do nothing with it, which is the art of loving something. And as we learn to love this thing uh, through uh non-identification with it. The energy that was contained in it, it is extracted from it. And where does that energy go? The energy gets extracted into the awareness that holds that form. It gets extracted into the formless. From the form in which we start, we only see form. And over time, it gets extracted into the awareness that knows that form, that sees, that hears but it's not the object that it sees, it's not what it sees, it's the very fact that it can see, the very fact that it can know, that it can understand. And that, that which holds the form, the awareness, another word for that is love. Now, love, we have to be very careful with because we get very confused. We have a definition. Many teachers don't even particularly like using the word because it has so many uh, uh, meanings based upon our history with that word. <clears throat> but if you think of what the quality and nature of love is, it's that which holds but does not uh, try to persuade or push or judge. It doesn't. Add anything to it, it just reveals what it sees. And that's the nature of pure awareness. So, we wonder how metta, metta, can be a parami. Well, metta is a parami because it's the nature of pure awareness. And all of the paramis are, let us say, qualities of the nature of awareness. They're not really qualities in the sense that when we are present, when we are abiding in presence, we necessarily feel this uh, patience, this generosity, this love, this ethical conduct. It's just the way that it is. And so looking outside of it, into it, if you looked at somebody who was living in presence, you would say, well, that man has a lot of, or woman has a lot of love, that woman or man has a lot of patience. He or she has um, a a strong ethical base. And that's our judgment, a mental judgment, formed by their actions, by the way they are, the kindness they show, the leniency, the patience, etc. And that's our interpretation of what's going on within them. What's going on in them is silence, is stillness. And so another way of approaching this is to say that as we practice, we become quieter. And as we become quieter, we become more warm-hearted until there is an actual threshold in which we no longer have a reference for what we're doing at all we just abide within that state of presence and love is the manifestation of that. So each one of us are on that road. If you're practicing, if you're um, sitting, if you're encouraging stillness and quiet in your life, if you're encouraging that, if you are um, have an intentionality for your life not to be so mechanically oriented, if you have an intentionality for your life not to be so demonstrative and reactive and so a drama prone, if you have an intention for your life to come to quietude, then that intention is also the intention to be more loving. That natural warmth. The Buddha said, one that knows love is very close to the truth. And as this practice deepens within us, we manifest more in a loving way. It's as simple as that, really. We just turn ourselves over to the heart. Because the mind hasn't worked. We keep trying to make the mind work, and we keep seeing that it's not working, and the alternative is to turn it over to the heart. So if you just are aware of how your mind's not working, then you'll automatically go to the alternative. I mean, is it working? And so, another—I'm just showing you different ways to look at this topic. Other you know, different ways to um, know that you're on this path. You, it's also not a path because love doesn't do this. It's not a path of um, distance. How far have I come? How far have I got to go? Uh, you know. How loving am I? That's the mental forgery of love. The mental forgery of love makes it into a competition. Well, he's been sitting years less than I have, and he seems to be more loving than I have to work on my love. (laughs) That's a mental forgery. Anytime the mind grabs hold, it grabs hold in terms of an evaluation, in terms of a comparison. You know you're not in love when you're comparing your love, All right. You have to turn this thing over. You turn the stakes. It's a high game stakes, right? We're in poker, like $10,000 chips. You say, God, I don't know anything about this game. I like, turn it over. It's like, you play the game. I'm out of it. And love takes over. Would you want it any other way? You want to do it yourself? Bring yourself into it? Oh, I can do this. <laughs> you see, so I, I keep showing all of you that you're on the road to anatta by surrendering your separation, by the willingness to don't think, Oh, I have no I know nothing about anatta. That's the mind's attempt to know itself, to know its own emptiness. It doesn't know its own emptiness. You just set your course and know your terrain, know the pitfalls, which is what we are doing here all along the way. We're teaching the pitfalls, we're teaching the potholes. And then you turn over, just turn it over. And that means, for most of you, having a consistent relationship to the Dharma, a dharma relationship looks like a long-term love affair. So I ask you how committed you are in your historical love affairs, because that's probably the way you'll be with dharma. Uh? <laughs> doesn't sound too hopeful here. <laughs> yep. The point, though, is that there's going to be ups and downs in this. Sometimes you're going to feel like nothing's going on, like this is dead water. Why am I even in this relationship with the Dharma? It's going to feel just like a relationship feels. And at some point you're going to feel like you're not getting enough out of it. There's just more excitement in your thinking. There's better life to be lived in your entertainment and in your intensity and in your drug use or whatever you're doing. And then you've lost the relationship. You've divorced yourself. You've sought a divorce. You can have a divorce. You can turn your back on this. But boy, you know, once you get into it, then you try to turn your back on it, it's all hell breaks loose. You think your life wasn't working before. Now you have enough consciousness to know that your life isn't working. (laughs) And it just... It just becomes. I mean, you try to forget it. I would. I would like to give that homework assignment sometimes. <laughs> Your job is to forget it this week, right? You can't do it. You wake up with it. You go to sleep with it all day long. It nags at you. That's love knocking at a, at the door plus, it doesn't allow you to get away with anything. You know, you say you're going to do something and then you don't do it. And you know you said it. And then you try to put a lot of reasons for why you don't need to do it. And those don't hold up because you see that your rationalization doesn't work. And so you end up doing it. So it's better just to do it to start with. It doesn't let go. It gets worse. <laughs> This is true. So this thing of love, what do we know of love? You see, some of the beautiful qualities of love, and you can call it what you will, it's warm-hearted. Like all of the Brahma Viharas are uh, qualities of love. They are love in different orientations to events. Like compassion is love when it meets pain. Mudita or uh, empathetic joy is love when it meets the success of someone else. It doesn't feel um, jealous of that success. It feels delighted that the person is succeeding. So love when it meets success is empathetic joy. Love, metta itself, is the... It's the air that it that we breathe in. It's the thing that surrounds us at all times. It's just it's it's just that warm-heartedness that we can carry with us. We can block it. We can put a lot between ourselves and that warm-heartedness. We can bring the mind to bear in our life so that it becomes the primary organ that we're using, and then we aren't going to feel it. But if we set our intention, to be loving, to be kind, there's lots of different ways to say it, then emptiness will be, you're also setting your intention towards emptiness because the quieter you become, the less self-defined you will be and the more loving you are. So those that's the dynamics of this. That's the dynamics. And you don't have to try to erase yourself. Don't do that. Just watch how the mind interferes and keep seeing that that's not the way you want your life to go. I don't want to constantly compare and contrast and evaluate and judge and hate and I don't want to do that. So you look when you look at the motivation from the intention, then you will surrender that secondary need to separate and you will then come into more of an alignment. With your own emptiness and you will become, take another step into a full abiding being of love. You see? This is all about the heart. All about the heart. And, I mean, there's such beautiful qualities that we can each extend in our ordinary interactions in the world that bring through that intentionality. For instance, the ability to understand and listen. The willingness to understand someone is to, is to open one's heart to that person. In fact, in uh, Thai, the word understanding is literally um, opening, opening the heart. So, those of you that have any capacity to, or in your job, as one of the skills, or in your everyday life, through your interactions, the willingness to listen is the willingness to offer oneself and the other love. You're allowing not your own agenda to move into that person. You're not powering them or trying to control them. Or trying to force them in some way. But rather, we are taking them into our heart. We are taking them into our heart. And whenever the current of the stream of events goes in instead of out. Out, the the outward flow of events looks like I'm being in control and I'm being, um, you know, everything is uh, around me and, you know, that's the outward flow. That's the current in reverse. But the, the current of listening, the current of learning, the current of understanding, those currents are very receptive currents. And those that's the way love flows. That's the way love flows. So don't look for it in terms of some kind of romantic flicker. That's a misperception of what we're doing here. It's, it's friendliness of the heart. It's basic warmth of the heart. And all kinds of mental uh, conditioning keeps us from that. Our impatience. I mean, you can see how the, how all of these other paramis sets us up not to love. I mean, the, the converse of these paramis, impatience. The lack of generosity, selfishness, all of those are me going forward in that stream. Right? If I'm impatient, it's my timing, not your timing. If I'm selfish, it's my needs, not what's in front of me. You see, all, you can feel the current shift. And when the current shifts, it shifts away from love. So all of the paramis, all of the patience, the generosities, the ethical conducts, the resolves, all of those things, when flowing in in a wise direction, are in concert with the whole stream bed that holds them, which is love. And it hurts to love because you feel vulnerable. You see... That's part of the defense is the reason that we don't love is that we don't want to feel the vulnerability of loving. And we think that vulnerability, so we build a whole cultural ideal about not being vulnerable, being well defended. And we think that's the right way to live. Because when, you're, when the sensitivity of the heart touches life, when life touches itself like the Sistine Chapel... You're going to feel the impact of life. You're going to receive it. There's going to be sensitivity of it. It's going to. You're going to. We're going to feel the textures of it, and it's going to hurt. It's not. Doesn't just hurt, but we have to be willing to allow it to hurt. It doesn't just hurt. There's also joy. It's tremendous happiness. Tremendous sense of well-being. Tremendous tenderness. But the more tender we are. We also feel the pain of the world. That's the compassion side of love. You feel the trouble. You feel the hurt. And there's nothing to do about it, you see. When I was talking about the Brahma-Viharas, the aspect of love called equanimity, which is one of the Brahma-Viharas, we think of it as sort of holding up some place that doesn't feel anything. It's not that at all. It's the aspect that sees life, loves life for itself as it is, without demanding it to be different. Loves it just for the way it is, still based in love. It's not a cold, distant, isolated state, protected, protected, not at all. And so we have to be careful of how we understand the Dharma and how we use it. And this has been a theme that I will continue to press upon us because many of us go out there and we hear Dharma teachings that seem to indicate uh, a negation of what I'm saying, like uprooting defilements. First of all, just hold love, love, okay, Now, uprooting defilements. How how is that loving? It sounds like you're weeding your garden. Throwing out those bad things. There's nothing bad in this world. There's nothing that we can get rid of. There's no weeding in this garden. We take everything. We take the whole garden. Flowers and weeds. That's how we have to do it. So what does it mean in the literature and this Suttas and when you end up the arcane language of uprooting defilements. What does that mean? Maybe it means placing more faith in your ability to love rather than believing in the limitation. Because the defilements hold the mind's limitation, they hold the perception of the mind's evaluation. Now you can go there, you can, you can invest your energy in that state and everything it tells you from that state, or you can go to the formless that holds that state, the love that holds that state, without trying to change that state, it becomes uprooted merely because we have divested our belief out of it. You see? So we have to be very careful, very careful, because we love, you see, we... the the sense of me loves to get in here and start meddling with its ability to love. And you put it in charge of uprooting those parts of yourself that you think need to be changed. It will create all kinds of havoc for you, but you won't find love. You won't find that. You'll find um, enormous contempt, self-contempt, Enormous self-contempt. You'll find judgment and you'll find a a growing sense of aggravation and irritation that you aren't moving faster towards what you think is love because these states of mind keep coming back proportional to our need to get rid of them. So here's what the Buddha says. It is in this way we must train ourselves. By liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice love. We will make it both a ways and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. I love that. Because he's like up on top of this mountain, right? Talking to all these things. And I can just, I hope that he was just like, This is what, (laughs) we're gonna, this is it. This is the bottom line, people. This is the bottom line. So then we have to come back in to ourselves and see where we're not loving. We have to, in the words of Sharon Salzberg, reteach a thing, it's loveliness. We teach a thing, it's loveliness. Because we've lost that in our history, in our damnation, in our moralism, in our Righteousness and our, we have cast ourselves into uh, troubled waters. We've lost any reference to ourselves. We have lost any nurturance. Not all of us, but in general, we've cast ourselves out of the territory of love because when we look at it, all we see are things which are very opposite to that state. Have you ever noticed that you don't see your own loving or you don't honor the places where you're loving? Just notice how unkind you are, but you don't notice your kindness, do you? I can Many times I'll say to someone, that's such a kind thing you did. Oh, I didn't do it. No, that was, you know, I didn't do it. It's like, let's dismiss that one and get over that so I can get back to my state of contraction. Don't tell me that. Just start noticing. Start noticing. You're loving. How loving you are. Where you're loving. Where you're kind. Where you're naturally generous. Where there's no effort involved. And honor it. Honor it. Just honor this because this is what is being transformed. You see, if we, if it's, if there's this judgment that's comes in, so that we only notice where we're unkind, where we're where we're selfish, where we're impatient. And you're noticing that, you're actually increasing the shadow and the fact that that thing will occur more frequently. By not noticing where you're going, you're creating and continuing the opposite. I I remember very distinctly, I had a, Wonderful um, relationship with Ram Das for years. And uh, I, would, I, w- I would often go and see him when there were troubling times. This was uh, 25, 30, 40 years ago. And uh, one time he I was just telling him about something I can't remember. He said, you don't even see your own loveliness. I couldn't believe, I mean, I was telling him the crap, you know, my, all the stuff. I mean, I didn't, where was there any loveliness in that? Where was there anything to be happy? You know, it's like, how, I just laid it all out for you, and you're saying that to me? That's your response? That's it. Don't you feel your heart? Doesn't your heart just want to come out? You see, doesn't it just, isn't there something in you that just wants to embrace life in a completely different way? To reteach a thing its loveliness. And for us to say, okay, you know, let us start. That's why metta, the practice of metta, not Metta is itself a state of love. The practice of metta is an orientation to that state. Don't confuse those two. But the practice of metta starts with self. Why does it start with self? Because if it doesn't, nothing else happens. You can't skip yourself because you really. Love everyone. You want to love everyone, but not this one. Exclude this one. This one's, you know, seems too troubling. If I could encourage you to spend a project of a year, and really, with the intention of loving oneself, loving yourself, and take it really on, and so that you're aware of every incident in which there is the lack of that love. And and to really bring a a curiosity, an investigation, what I call, um, often in interviews, I'll say, be a cultural anthropologist to yourself. Which means you you go in there and just look at the terrain, look at the language, look at the the culture of the self-dislike. Don't try to disturb it, just get to know it. See what it does, see how it operates, see the languages it uses, the sense of contempt, the emotions that arise. But you're not there to change anything. You're just there to get the data down, like you were a cultural anthropologist on some South Sea, sea island. And writing it down, and just taking that, you would see that there would be so much more space that each of us would have for those moments of knee-jerk contempt, You would see that that space would provide relief from the self-condemning emotions that follow. You would see that that space would begin to actually have some sense of allowance and respect for yourself. Not in doing, but in seeing. Not in changing, but in noticing. that there would be a breath of fresh air that blew through this density of self dislike. And then, then, perhaps spending that year doing nothing but self-metta. And then you would find there would be this natural tendency, this natural movement of warm heartedness to others, which can never happen as long as there's self-contempt, because we see those act those very behaviors, expressions of mind, emotions that we so detest in ourselves, in others, and we recoil back from others because we haven't worked with them sufficiently in ourselves. But we want to move beyond the self. We want to get it out there. All beings, I love all beings, all (laughs) beings. Not my neighbor, not my boss. My spouse, I have problems with. My family, I have no relationship with. But all beans. <laughs> it's, it's easy to love the multitudes, isn't it? Hard to love the neighbor. Why? Because the, there's no, it's all homogenized milk when you go all beans. It's like, you know, what's all beans? What is that? No, it's nothing. It's just like, It's like nothing, flat land, right? There's nothing there. That's why in metta, the practice of metta, we start with someone easy, not ourselves. We start with a benefactor, and we find that benefactor a warm connection, and then we start moving out to concentric circles of more difficult and ambiguous relationships. And what we do with each one is that we orient our our heart to, not to their difficulties, because they're much more than just the irritating behavior they show. A person is much more than their behavior, right? And so when we begin to see and realize or orient ourselves to a person more than what, how they walk, talk, think, Then you begin to actually have that relationship with the vastness of people in your life. You can start, you see, you have to take this, you have to take this message of love and put it into action. It's not, can't be theoretical. It's like all this other, it can't be, well, I sure would like to be loving, so I'll practice loving all beings. You know, and then you're in an apartment and the person above you starts walking hard on the floor above and you, in the middle of your method as one person told me they <laughs> so that's not putting it into action we have to put this thing into action and so that's what you stop believing is where the where the irritation comes back at you because you now once you figure this thing out so do the mind's not going to welcome love because it eliminates the mind. <laughs> so it's not going to want to take that pill of love because it's not longer in control, it's not firmed, and it's not in its disciplined righteousness. It's not there. So when we start moving this thing, the mind kicks back. And it shows you all the reasons why you shouldn't be loving. Both in yourself and, you know, how dare you love yourself? Look how awful you are. Do you see what you just did? And not only that, but think 20 years ago, what you did then. <laughs> so then it's got you in the present and it's got you in the past. It says, you th- how can you go into the future when 20 years ago you did that act? You did that thing. And so guilt becomes a way for it to be for you to tether yourself to not non loving, to self contempt. And you think that time is going to heal that? Has it? Doesn't. All that happens is that your self contempt grows and you find other reasons to be even more self contempt, full of self contempt because that and you think well you know how will i ever forgive myself you will not ever forgive yourself because you did it and lining that fact up and settling with it and saying okay i did it that's it i'm not moving away from it i'm not pretending that i did did something different than what i did it's a historical fact i did it that's all and you look at it you feel the implications of it you feel the reactions to it And the willingness to sit there is the state of love holding that memory. And then the memory starts evolving out of its self-contempt form. When we can't hold the memory, then it just builds on its own contempt. And so that's it. We start feeling, see, again, what you are, in essence, is love, awareness. And what you will experience is the lack of that love and awareness. Because the forms of the world don't hold that love and awareness. And what we try to do in our personal representation to form is to bring a form in where we have a natural ease of relaxation and heart warmth with it. And then we try to possess that form because that form is allowing some resonance of my own love to come forth. And then we try to possess that form as being the reason that I can love is because I love you. I need you in the picture in order for me to have love. And that kind of love, because it's on a scale of possessiveness when that person does something or falls out of the picture or I no no longer feel the same love, then I have to find somebody new who I can have this renewed. It's all a misunderstanding of where love is coming from. A disorientation. You have to be wiser than that. It moved from one object to another. Squeezing and draining the life out of that person as we hold on to them for our love. This is much bigger than you. Now, if it's much bigger than you, it's not of your working. It's not under your control. And the fastest way to get through the Dharma is to realize that fact. And to surrender our opposition and our need to force a self made, image sustained me throughout this entire Dharma process. It simply doesn't work. It's going backwards, it's adharmic. We think we're going forward because those are the strategies that are most comfortable to us. But every step we take, we're actually going back one. And so, what are we left with? You see, one reference that I have in all the years of my working with the dying... Is that I've seen people, as they move closer to their death, and they irreversibly, so they know, and they, and for the a few, those those few that actually, you know, this is admit to that. So there's no denial. They know their life is coming to an end, and their family usually tries to keep them in the their frame of reference so they put up family pictures around them which keeps them contained within those relationships but many of them are their consciousness expanding beyond the family which is rightfully where they need to go and so so does their love and it doesn't feel to the family that they're being dismissed or lo- lo- it feels to other people who come into the room besides the family, that they're being embraced. And the love becomes not individuated, but universal. It becomes felt because it's no longer forced into a container of I and thou. Sharon Salzberg tells the story. Uh, she was at a meditation retreat center with a Burmese teacher, and the Burmese teacher tested her metta because Sharon was doing months and months of metta. And he said, um, "You're in the woods uh, with a close friend, an enemy, and yourself, and a bandit comes, or a robber, or..." murderer or someone, and says, um, I'm going to take one of your lives, and I'm going to let the other two go, and Sharon, you decide which one you would like to get killed. And so the Burmese teacher asks Sharon that question, and Sharon says, I don't know. I can't, I have no idea which one. And that was the right answer. You see? What are you going to say? Take me? See, that's the noble one, right? But if you love yourself equally, are you going to surrender yourself to the bandit so that your enemy and your friend could go? See, is that love? Or are you going to surrender your enemy so that you can be few, f- finished with that irritation? <laughs> that w- many of us would go in that direction, right? I don't know anymore. And when you really don't know, then the wave comes back in on you. And now you're a part of the you're part of the, the the entire ocean of it. And so even though the sense of self is diminishing in self importance, love is arising for the sense of self proportional to that diminishment of self-importance. Isn't that amazing? And so you really care when you're hurt. It's not an irritation when you break something. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? I need to take care of this. And you look at the mind, you look at the body with enormous appreciation and generosity. And you want to do what you can to sustain it, to make it healthy, to support it. And so in metta, when we love all beings, we're loving all disguises and parts of ourselves. That's what we're loving. May all beings, is saying, may all parts of me, may all parts of me be safe and free of danger. All the different disguises, all the different shapes that my mind take. There's no enemy here, there's no enemy. And so then we know love. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute or two? So as we sit. do we sit is it just full of kickbacks and dust storms I can't believe I was spending so much time thinking is it full of self-contempt valuation or is there ease of well-being? Have just a very few minutes for any questions or comments you might have. I'd be happy to answer them if I could or engage in dialogue. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, we can always go to the Hitler factor, right? And you say, well, you know, I can love everybody, but I can't love the neighbor who does the violent crime. I can't love Hitler and six million Jews died. I can't. There's always uh, there's always the one person that we can keep out of our heart. Right. But I love the fact that a person is more than the sum of their behavior. And therefore, no matter what we do in the course of our life, the person always has the ability to come back into alignment. Now, are we going to throw that person out and just discard them forever because their behaviors were so terrible, so awful, so violent, so divisive that it hurt us so bad to see what they did that we can't welcome them back in with the potential that they could change? They may never change, but to throw somebody out of your heart is to make a statement about their potential to change. You see? And so it's not that you take a violent person and let them out of jail because you love, you want to love them. No, you keep them in jail because you don't want them to hurt anyone else. But that doesn't rob them of the potential to change. And so the willingness not to fix somebody in terms of their behaviors is, I mean, look at our own behaviors. Is there anyone in the room who is guilt free? I mean, each of us have carry, I'm sure some tragedy within us, which we feel compelled and, invested in the shame and guilt of that event and how different is that than the stories we read in the newspaper and yet if we felt that we were not able to move our heart into a different way and into a different alignment then what are we doing here Some people have to experience their deeds, which they do, which is what karma is about. And the resulting, I I actually believe that, I really believe this, that people who have violent hate for particular contingency groups like racial groups will be reborn into that racial group. I I really believe that. My brother uh, was born in 1943. And very young age, he was speaking German. He used to carry pictures of Hitler with him. He uh, walked into a U-boat that was in the Chicago... Museum of something in Chicago, there's a captured German U boat, and he knew every valve, what everything did. And he had dreams of being in the war, etc. Interesting, isn't it? And he was born American. <laughs> the very culture that I'm sure he was posed. To eradicate. You see, this is much bigger. It's much, this is much. Take this thing. Take this thing out and stretch it. So, what does our past lives look like? You don't think there's horse thieves in there (laughs) or much worse. And I believe that the real salvation for dying is that we can then start over in memory and not be tortured by what we have done. So we get, we become little less judgmental. Again, it doesn't mean you don't put people in prison to keep them contained until they can come to their own sense of inward resources. But what does it do to our heart to hold people out of it? Because that's the real question, isn't it? And because of that, the heart can't tolerate some peace peace missing. Because it takes only a single snowflake to be excluded and then you're back in the mind. That's all that's necessary for the mind to regain control. This is an all or nothing game. Take out a snowflake and you have the devil and you have God. And then you have the forces of evil and the forces of good. And then you have our situation on earth. Anyone else would like to? Is that it for this evening?